Hello, fellow venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. Welcome back to the Long Game Podcast. We trust you have been well in these exciting times. In this episode titled Greening the Grid, we have an exciting guest, Juan Siti Safina Saleh, CEO of MyPower, who will share insights into the Malaysian electricity market. But before we jump right into our discussion with Juan Safina, let's catch up on the latest news and trends in the energy and finance sectors, both globally and here in Malaysia, with our colleague, Iman. So sit back, relax, and let's get started! I'm Iman, I'm an analyst of Penjana Capital. In today's episode, we will be covering the global venture capital market dynamics in the third quarter of 2023. During the third quarter, global VC investment fell to a 16-quarter low as the VC market continued to feel the pressure of global economic and geopolitical uncertainties, ongoing concerns about valuations and down rounds, and a lack of exit opportunities. Deal speeds continue to slow as VC investors remain cautious, undertaking more due diligence related to potential deals and prioritizing companies with clear paths to profitability. VC investors also continue to focus on improving the operational efficiencies of their portfolio companies. In quarter three, several jurisdictions outside of the US and other traditional big-ticket markets attracted over $100 million deals, including Francis Vercors Series C round, which raised over €2 billion, Euros, Australia's Wallamy Capital's $220 million Series A round, and Ireland's TechMed $200 million round, to name a few. On the side of exits, the global IPO market showed signs of revival in late quarter three. Notable IPOs include ARM, Instacart, and Clavio in the United States. While these IPOs were respectable, their post-IPO performance remains uncertain. The true test lies in whether other startups with follow suit in quarter 4 and quarter 1 of next year, with the US market poised for potential growth given its robust investor pool. Speaking of progress and growth, there's exciting news for the startup and venture capital community in Malaysia. Leading global venture capital firm Antler is teaming up with Malaysia's sovereign wealth fund Kazana to extend its international footprint into the Malaysian market. Additionally, Kumpulan Wang Persaraan Kuap Malaysia's pension fund has also launched the 500 million ringgit Dana Perintis to bolster the country's venture and startup ecosystem. These developments bought well for the industry as they promise an influx of funding into the local ecosystem, driving further growth and innovation. Before diving into the interview, let's hear some fun facts from my colleague Hazman. Before we dive into our interview with Juan Safina, I'd like to share some fascinating fun facts about Malaysia's renewable energy, particularly focusing on Sarawak and the Sarawak Corridor of Renewable Energy, or SCORE. Did you know that Sarawak is Malaysia's largest renewable energy provider? A whopping 70% of the total electricity generation in the region comes from hydropower resources. This incredible achievement is made possible by a Sarawak strategic development of dams in its river and mountainous terrain. 
What's more, the Sorok government has ambitious plans to harness these resources to produce low-carbon hydrogen, with the goal of developing a thriving hydrogen economy in the region. This not only promotes sustainability, but also offers exciting opportunities for innovation and economic growth. Sorok's competitive advantage doesn't end there. It has become the lowest-cost electricity provider in the region. This competitive edge in electricity tariffs is a magnet for investors, especially industries that rely on low-cost energy for their production processes. Now let's talk about SCORE. Established by the federal government of Malaysia in 2008, SCORE is a key player in stimulating investment-led growth in traditionally rural areas. As of last year, in 2022, SCORE has recorded a remarkable $102.36 billion in public and private investment. But that's not all. Since January 2016, Sarok has been exporting an impressive average of 190 to 200 megawatts of power for the Indonesian National Utility, Persohan District, Negara. This marks a significant milestone towards realizing the ASEAN Power Grid, an initiative by the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, aimed at strengthening electricity infrastructure in the region. And there's even more on the horizon. Sarok has set its sights on long-term energy goals, including plans to export power to Singapore and Brunei. The target is to export a substantial 1 gigawatt of electricity to Singapore. Additionally, discussions are underway for a power exchange agreement with Brunei for electricity exports. In summary, Sarok's role in Malaysia's renewable energy landscape is nothing short of remarkable. It is a leader in the renewable energy sector with ambitions to foster a low-carbon hydrogen economy, attract investors through competitive energy tariffs, contribute to regional electricity infrastructure, and pursue cross-border energy exports. Thank you for listening, and that's all from me. Let's get straight into the interview. Welcome to the Long Game Podcast by Penjana Capital. Here today with us um, is Puan Siti Safina, CEO of My Power. In this episode, we will talk about electricity industry in Malaysia as well as My Power's role within the industry. Puan Safina joined My Power in 2021, and My Power was first established in 2011 under Messi 1.0, in short for Malaysia Electricity Supply Industry 1.0, and re-established in 2018 under Messi 2.0. Welcome, Puan Siti Safina, to the Long Game Podcast. Puan Siti Safina, could you please share with us uh, the mandate of uh, My Power and how's the journey since 2021? Thank you, Taufik, and thank you, Pajana Capital, for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, it's a very interesting one, and I think very appropriate for the sort of scope and sector that I'm looking at, which is really a long-term strategy, right? So the long game is really appropriate for for the electricity sector. Uh, so I joined, as you rightly put it, I joined in 2021. Uh, actually, it was established slightly earlier, reactivated in 2019 uh, by the government at that point in time that felt that the The power sector needed to accelerate some of the liberalisation efforts that had been uh, talked about even prior to that. Uh, so my power, uh, as you said, you know, in the start when it was first uh, established, uh, it was actually established to uh, implement a set of reforms. And some of the achievements that were achieved uh, then, that were made then, uh, was actually in terms of uh, determining the incentive-based regulatory framework for determining the tariffs. Uh, it it, were, it also achieved, you know 
pull, pushing up the gas prices more to market reflective prices rather than the um, uh, low prices that we had earlier, again, determined by the government. So it's really moving towards more market-determined uh, type of pricing and also structure. So now in, the, in this next round, uh, initially what was uh, mandated by the government in 2018 was actually to push out, as I said, the liberalised uh, market model. However, a few things happened, as we know, 2020, 2019 and 2020, COVID hit, right? Uh, and when the pandemic crisis came about, uh, there was a lot of things that we needed to rethink about this liberalised market model. The other thing that happened was in 2021, and this is why you know my role became very interesting when I joined, is that the energy crisis came about. Mm -hmm. And it impacted even, you know, very severely many markets, even the most uh, liberalized or open markets. And when I say liberalized, it means that there is competition uh, at the generation level. There is a competition at, uh, you know, the wholesale market level as well. And there is open retail uh, at the end, right? for the consumers to choose. Now we saw a lot of retailers going bust. Mm. We saw a lot of markets where the generators, uh, because it's really, you know, again, market driven, they couldn't afford to buy the fossil fuels, right? Um, the gas, etc. cetera. Um, and they had to, uh, they couldn't play in the market and they had to uh, not provide electricity. So there was a lot of blackouts in many countries. And this included, you know, Australia and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, prices spiked in the UK. Mm. Um, China had blackouts and, and so on and so forth. So then we realized that, uh, you know, hey, take a step back. Let's rethink about what liberalization actually means and how do we ensure that as we move towards a more industry-based market structure that it is not going to compromise energy security. Right. Excellent point. Um, so the end game is basically to liberalize the electricity industry in Malaysia. Uh, there are three components of the industry, as you rightly pointed out, from the generation to the, the distribution, transmission, and eventually the market itself, uh, the retail market. Um, eventually, uh, the product of liberal liberalization will translate to better tariff, of course, for the end users. I'll come back to, to uh, each component of the industry, but let me just kill uh, um, down to the tariff itself. I think the difference between Messi uh, 1.0 and Messi 2.0 is the element of the uh, fuel, the generation part, which uh, expanded from just fuel to include uh, coal in the Messi 2.0. Perhaps if you can um, share with us why um, the scope of that uh, generation is expanded to coal and what does it mean to eventually uh, the tariff structure. After all, fuel still make up about 40 to 50 percent of the tariff here. Uh, so let me just clarify on the Mezi 2.0 front. So although initially um, when it was reactivated in 2018, the uh, reform that was uh, put forth then is called Mezi 2.0 with a number of initiatives. Actually, since then, because of the pandemic and also because of the energy crisis, we have revisited all of that. We have reviewed it and actually coal is not one of our focus areas. Yeah, sorry, gas. I mean gas, gas or coal? Sorry. Uh, Coal was initially, yeah. opening up the coal market was also one of the Mezi 2.0 initiatives. Mm. Uh, but that is no longer the case uh, now. So we've re-looked at it under, we restudied, you know, what does the power sector actually need? Uh, what does the industry, what do the consumers actually want? Mm. Right? Um, and I think there's also taking into account that there's this big push uh, under the 3D. Mm. Decarbonisation. Mm. 
there's a lot of decentralized technologies coming up, uh, solar rooftops and whatnot, uh, and also digitalization, which basically allows us to do more than what we used to be able to do, right? So taking all of that into account, our reforms now are in that we've recommended to the government are in four areas. The first area is governance reforms. The second area is in uh, reform of planning. The third area is in reforms of the industry. And the fourth area is reform of tariff. Now, under all of the four reforms areas, there are about 10 initiatives that, that we have recommended to implement in the short to medium term in order to get this going. Now, coming back to your question about the energy mix, right? the energy mix, and that's also a big part of how we reviewed this. Because of the push for decarbonization, um, going back historically, and in context matters, right? Going back historically, in 2014, thereabouts, uh, during the first MESI, a conscious policy decision was made to actually increase our the coal in our jet in our mix our energy mix and that decision wasn't made because we liked coal we knew coal was uh, actually coal in terms of efficiency level in producing energy is not uh, as good as gas but that decision was made to enable gas prices to go up while maintaining uh, overall of overall attractive and affordable tariff uh, for the people, right? So that was the trade-off that we made uh, back then. And hence, today, what we have as of last year, what we have within the energy mix, and there are two metrics that we should look at, right? The first metric is what is available, so installed capacity. Installed capacity today is roughly about 39 to 40% coal, uh, about more than 40, slightly over 40% uh, gas, and the remaining about 20% uh, renewable energy, and that includes hydro, right? So that's what we have in terms of what's available and installed out there. But on a generation basis, what is actually uh, produced on a year-to-year -year basis, last year, uh, actually coal was the most in terms of our generation mix, about 55%. Less in terms of gas, gas was about 30 plus percent, and then about 4 to 5% of RE, and that includes hydro and uh, RE. Now, why, why is that the case? It's really because while we have the installed capacity, based on the prices at any particular point in time, uh, that, that is actually the energy that gets dispatched. So coal was cheaper than gas uh, at any point in time. Coal is always cheaper than gas, so that's what got uh, dispatched. A lot of people talk, um, given the escalation of geopolitics, political risks um, in recent weeks. Uh, of course, people talk about Russia, people talk about Europe, um, and how Europe is highly dependent on Russian uh, gas in particular. Um, and, and, and the culprit within Europe is, of course, uh, Germany, uh, which consume a lot of energy given that it's, um, the structure of its economy dependent on uh, manufacturing and, industri and industrial sectors. Uh, but people forgot um, that the country used to be dependent on nuclear. Uh, but 2011, which is a pivotal year, not only for Messi 1.0, but also because of Fuku, uh, Fukushima, they um, afraid of the risk uh, of having nuclear uh, as a, a major source of electricity. And they decided to uh, descale significantly. Used to have 17 nuclear reactors, eventually scaled down to only three active ones. And uh, to make up for the deficit, that's why they uh, you know, depend on uh, Russian gas. So again, you bring up a good point. It's all about diversification. Security, energy security is all about diversifying your sources. Now, um, I would like to uh, 
talk about so-called this renewable energy. Again, um, I was a devil advocate uh, uh, a minute ago, but now let me become a proponent of so-called renewable energy. Yes, it may be not commercially viable now. It must be. It might be costly, but as we all know, renewable energy, the marginal cost of producing uh, renewable energy, in particular like solar or hydro, uh, eventually will be close to zero. So over the long term, uh, renewable energy could become potentially most cost-competitive source uh, of energy and electricity. What is your thought on that? It's already actually on a pure levelized cost of energy level, it's already competitive. It's actually the cheapest in terms of the LCOE of energy uh, among all the, the different sources, right? Uh, different fuel mix. So, but that's just purely on energy level. Uh, but once you integrate it and want to dispatch it to the grid, actually the integration cost of renewable, intermittent renewable, or what we call variable renewable energy, is actually quite high uh, because of the in nature of intermittency. So understanding that, I think, um, I, I agree with it. I think technolo technology is evolving. Uh, we hope that technology will evolve faster. And we are hoping that technology will become more affordable and accessible to us as well, because that will really drive down that integration cost that we need uh, for renewables uh, within the, the system, right? Because right now, even though it's when it's integrated within the system, you have to provide for this balancing voltage management, you have to provide for uh, frequency management, we have to provide for backup in case there is no intermittency uh, issue. So all the intermittency issues and all of that means that the grid and the grid system, and when I say system, I also mean the conventional plants, have not been developed uh, in order to be to have that much flexibility, because that's not the way you know conventionally we didn't design it for that right. So now that design has to change, and changing that design not only takes time, is actually very costly. So we need to be able to bring down that cost uh, of all the different components, so that as a whole, that it makes sense from a cost efficient point of view. Okay. Acknowledging that point, uh, Puan Safina, that eventually marginal cost of producing more of uh, electricity will, will be close to zero if we are dependent on renewable energy. What does it mean to our tariff structure eventually as our energy composition move away from fossil fuel to more of renewable energy? So one of the areas that we've recommended under this new set of uh, what we call future-proofing MESI reforms uh, to the government is that there needs to be a holistic reform on tariff. And that means two things. Number one is that the tariff structure has to be redesigned. And the second part is the tariff has to be, because the tariff, when it's redesigned, has to be cost-reflective, then the tariff, then the subsidies must also be targeted. And you have to have a redesign of the subsidy mechanism within electricity. Now, on the first part, in terms of restructuring the tariff, what we saw is that because as we are moving towards more renewable energy, zero marginal fuel, you know, zero marginal cost and, what, and whatnot, um, the cost structure is changing significantly. So therefore, there is a significant mismatch between the revenue and cost structure that we have today. The current tariff structure is based on a more volumetric uh, or variable based structure. So 90% of the revenue uh, is actually variable and only about less than 10% is actually uh, fixed. Whereas in this kind of 
you know, this kind of environment that we see and even moving towards more RE, it could actually, it's actually about 50-50 right now, 50% variable, 50% uh, fixed in terms of cost structure and with more, it could actually go more to up to 70% fixed, 30% uh, variable, right? So hence, we need to ensure that we balance, we rebalance this because otherwise the whole pricing and revenue collection you know, system breaks. We know that, right? In terms of uh, ensuring that there's a match between revenue and cost structures. Good, perfect. Uh, thanks, Buen Safina. So we are very clear. So one part of so-called the liberalization that my power advocates is eventually the tariff structure. And uh, energy composition is a key component of that tariff uh, uh, setting and we've discussed that but there's another part of liberalization that you also pursue and this is a market structure or market dynamics you've been wanting to promote um, open sourcing at the generation part eventually to um, wholesale market and eventually third-party access in the distribution part maybe you can talk more about that as well so this is a this is the end game right it's a long term uh, long journey for this. Uh, first is that the current market, it's, it's really important to understand why we have the, and where we are with the current context. We have a single buyer market model today. And that means while we are you know, competitive, we have multiple generators on the generation side, there is only one buyer for all the electricity produced. And that is the currently the ring-fenced uh, single buyer entity. Now, within that, then everything gets sent through and and sent to the consumers in a in a completely bundled package, right? Which means through transmission, distribution, everything is a single rate. Uh, and then at the consumer level, there's only one retail. Now, moving, moving towards this more RE, and that works. Actually, that works for... Uh, managing um, in, a, in a system where, you know, the, the fuel costs are pretty much stable. Um, you understand the market, you understand the gas market, where it's coming from. We understand where the coals are coming from. We understand how, you know, conventional generators operate, etc. That works, right? That works. Um, and there's, there's actually, it's simple, but there's also good, you know, you, economies of scale there. So it really maintains and uh, the cost levels, right? Um, but as we're moving towards more renewable energy, there's actually a the, the diversification of that energy mix means that this system no longer works as well. And as we move towards this difference between uh, conventional uh, generation and RE generation and all different sorts of generation, that whole structure also needs to change because the grids aren't designed for that. Uh, as well. So there will need to be new things like, for example, ancillary services that the grid might need to procure. We don't need to plant it up you know, in the, in the long term, but we need to procure it on a service basis, right? Because the grid needs uh, backup at certain points in time or needs reliability support at, at certain point in time. So all of that means new sorts of services that will be required. So this is where the shift towards a new market model uh, is, is, is moving towards, you know, what, what we're looking at in terms of that new market model that we're moving towards, right? Uh, wholesale, in, in essence, but the details are very different from the kind of wholesale markets that we see in other countries today. So that, that's the, why it hasn't been announced is that because we're still studying it. And it has to be carefully studied because there are a lot of repercussions and there are implications. We want to ensure that 
you know, projects are still bankable. We want to ensure that security is not um, jeopardized. We want to ensure that there's still cost efficiency. You know, all these things, uh, and how do we incentivize clean energy? All these things have to be really uh, planned uh, carefully. So we are an advocate of an orderly transition in that sense to this sort of market, new uh, market model that works for the Malaysian context. You um, indicate that there's still a lot of work in progress, but we all know that Messi 2.0 has um, uh, an expiry date and that would be December 2024. What can we expect by uh, end of 2024? What will my power achieve and the government could actually um, implement? Okay. Um, the first set uh, of tariff study should be completed by then. Uh, again, but when it is rolled out, I will leave that to the government. Again, these are big policy decisions that need to be made, right? Um, the first phase of industry uh, structure reform should be ready by then, the first phase. <laughs> and I'm saying that there will be multiple uh, phases of that. Um, and the focus of the first phase would be? The focus of the first phase would be to look at how do we look at long term. So really redesigning the market from a competitive basis, but also looking at uh, the requirements that we need, right? And procuring based on requirements that we need. What is a long-term requirement? What would be a medium-term horizon requirement? And what are short-term requirements? And then really looking at on a, on a kind of a big picture basis, what are the building blocks? Therefore, we need to put in place within that new market uh, mechanism. Uh, but again, these are what we are studying and dependent on the government to make that policy decision for to implement the first few steps that's really required. Um, but as a base, I think tariff is absolutely needed. The other thing that we've actually gotten through is really on the planning. So the way planning was done uh, in the past few years was actually just looking at supply and demand, and therefore, what is the generation capacity required? So now what we've actually gotten and where the government is working on right now is actually what we call an integrated planning uh, model. So in integrated planning, it means that we're not just looking at high-level demand forecast numbers, we're looking at really where the demand locations are, the demand centers are, looking at what is most cost-efficient so that we minimize the losses in terms of transmission, uh, looking at, okay, the generation, but also the transmission plan on a long-term basis, where the transmission needs to be also planned as well. Prior to this, it was more of generation decided, transmission plan came later, right? So now it's done on an integrated basis. So that's already ongoing and that should be something that's completed by end of next year um, in terms of the planning uh, shifts. Excellent. Uh, our podcast is very much a capital market centric. Um, Pinjana Capital itself is a venture capital uh, agency. Um, so we can help to ask you if your so-called reason of being is actually to disrupt the single buyer model and uh, move the entire industry towards more market-driven, more competitive and efficient uh, uh, model. What does that mean to TNB in your view? So TNB will certainly need to transform itself and it already is. So um, TNB needs to transform itself in terms of being able to be ready to play in this market. There will still be the conventional generators or power plants that they will have, still have to maintain uh, because that still has you know, long-term power purchase agreements uh, tied to it. And they will play, play a critical role actually in that sense. Uh, second is TNB's role as the grid asset owner. Right. Uh, that remains because the grid will continue to be a natural monopoly within the market. 
um, and then TNV's role as a retail player that also you know needs to shift and is starting to shift in terms of being you know not just at the end where you just provide it to the consumer but being able to provide it as a service to the consumer so it will be very much service driven so to me TNB will need to transform well probably progress itself not necessarily transform because it's bad but transforming to the next level right moving up to the next level in terms of providing this different sorts of services requirements and and uh, strategies moving forward they will have to be competitive so I think that will naturally be the way that they operate. So TNB will be a market participant as well in that um, in that market uh, that will be developed. Okay, excellent, very clear. So we will liberalize the generation market as well as the uh, retail market, uh, but infrastructure remains um, in the hands of TNB and. Uh, general public to Kazana, of course, being so-called the sovereign wealth funds of Malaysian government. Uh, talking about great, eventually, uh, what we all want to get out of this is we have a greener uh, electricity and we have much more efficient grid, uh, green and also efficient grid system. I would like to hear your thoughts since um, our audience are pretty much interested in technology space and we invest heavily in technology-related businesses. What is your view uh, on artificial intelligence and its role to make the grid system much more efficient? Oh, wow. Artificial intelligence, that's really beyond uh, this, you know, the horizon that we're looking at. Although I know, I know, you know, um, there's a lot of uh, new things uh, that's really coming up in that space. But before that, just to clarify on the retail aspect, we do, do not recommend liberalizing retail at this point in time. Okay, because it. we believe that, you know, it doesn't, the market is too small for too many retail players. Last time I checked, it's about 50 million, billion. Uh, that's the market size. Relatively it's small. Relatively yeah. small. So probably eventually, but let's get the generation side first, uh, correct, or, or readjusted first, right? Um, artificial intelligence now. So uh, as you know, um, <laughs> the grid system, um, you know, there is an issue of intermittency, uh, there's peak hours, uh, but actually a lot of data could potentially solve some of the pain points of the readiness of our grid system to cope, particularly during the peak hours. So, you know, artificial intelligence obviously have this so-called predictive uh, power, uh, an ability to learn uh, as more data being fed. So I'm just wondering if you have a thought on how TNB in particular, being the owner of the grid, could actually harness on uh, artificial intelligence. Certainly at some point in the future, what I think is a priority now is actually to enhance the automated functions of the grid. Um, the way we operate the grid right now is actually still reliant on people, right? Uh, and and we do need to get it to a more digitalized uh, and also automated level where we hardly need you know many people to be involved. I'll give you an example. In some countries, and I've seen some jurisdictions, for example, Texas or even in Italy, you've seen that the grid system operator in you know managing a whole a whole grid can actually operate with only two to three people. On, at one time because they do have the systems in place. Our grid still needs more than two or three people, right? It, it, we do need multiple people because and we still need people to call up and say, you know, uh, manage the plans, you know. <laughs> so it, it's still fairly there. And I think they, they, they are working on it. 
they are working they realize it they recognize it they are working on it but of course these are the things that we need to get ourselves to you know at this level so that that's the first goal i always try to break it up to the levels so artificial intelligence i think after we get ourselves to a more automated level then we should start thinking about predictive analytics definitely but the learning part maybe once it comes to a level where i don't know maybe 20 30 years in the future where we are comfortable that the learning um and the response to the learning right that we are able to rely purely on systems to actually respond and react to certain events um i think why not right it just makes it all quite efficient now the only reason and i'm i'm a big advocate of technology by the way i was a software engineer right so <laughs> i'm a big advocate of technology but the only reason i i have a bit of caution is purely because this is a very very critical infrastructure for us right so if we trust the ai to do it definitely right uh, i think it's all a matter of trust uh, in the technology once it becomes uh, mature in that sense okay in, in, in the reason why um, i bring this up is because within so called um, the um, secular trend uh, that we have seen um, in technology space uh, particularly mobility as you know we are fast becoming so called an adopter of electric vehicles we want to electrify not only our industrial activities but also our mobility um, so that means our dependency on electricity uh, will become a lot more current electricity mix is industrial 40% domestic 23 and uh, the balance is commercial so that means there will be more uh, at least for domestic um uh, particularly because of mobility as we adopt uh, more electric vehicles on the road so do you think our grid system is ready to cope and i would like to hear your thought as well about this electrification of economy activities what's your thought on that as well so a grid system at this point in time is certainly not ready to cope with variable on the supply side the variable um, renewable energy or variable type of energy uh, on the supply side um, our transmission would probably not be as affected but our distribution network does need to be reviewed because again we've built our distribution network based on a one way flow right it's not a two way flow in that sense um, and not a bidirectional participation even now we're seeing uh changes in terms of the consumption profile or what we call load profile because of solar rooftops etc so you know something will happen when we have a lot more evs so i can't say what it will look like for us because it really does depend on our own consumer behavior right when they actually charge even if in future whether there will be a discharging vehicle to grid right they can become batteries themselves right these evs so all of that will actually change the nature of the load profile and that is something that we have to adjust for we don't know today because we're not there yet and i think this is really part of the journey that we need to learn but one thing i think that triggered me um taufik in your question about technology the one thing that i think is a um, no regret and in fact would be a good thing to do right now is actually to adopt more technology in energy efficiency because the first rule and priority of the energy transition must be to have responsible or more efficient consumption 
we always focus on the supply side. We rarely focus on the demand side and how to really manage the demand side. We need more efficiency, efficient consumption on the demand side. And that really requires a lot of technologies. So technologies uh, for efficient consumption in industries, in commercial, even, a, even, at home. even at home. And I think we have... That is probably a blip in what we have today. And I think Time that's a huge to LED TV. Exactly. But where, where do we know that? So we know that one is we're hoping that tariff uh, restructuring will actually make a shift in that behavior. Some of the things that we're hoping, right, um, that we're aiming for. Uh, but also that there will also be technologies that will help to support consumers to actually be able to manage their energy efficiently. And then after that, having the respective uh, appliances and tools, etc., available for that. So it's, it's a whole ecosystem that needs to be put in place in order to drive the efficient energy consumption on the demand side. I would like to dig a little deeper on the electrification of the economy activities. As you know, we're more dependent on technology um, and um, as a result of that, we have more data. We also depend more uh, on, on, on big data. Um, and data needs to be stored. So um, we need even more hyperscale data centers that even consume a lot more electricity to cool it down and to, to let it operate uh, optimally. So I would like to hear your thoughts on where we're heading uh, and what does it mean to the electricity industry uh, as a whole and whether we, the country, is ready for this. So th this is a, a tough one. I think just focusing on data centres um, because it depends on which perspective you're coming from. So I guess let, let me talk from an energy uh, or electricity consumption perspective. So in 2019, um, Singapore... Uh, imposed a moratorium on building new data centres because data centres are obviously, you know, very much uh, power guzzlers, yeah. right? 40% of their operations are, or what, you know, what they spend on operations is really energy consumption, right? Um, and they're not very efficient for the system in that sense, right? Um, very resource intensive. And Singapore had, I think at that time, about 70 to hundred or thereabouts uh, data center. I can imagine why they imposed that moratorium because they're such a small island, right? Um, and, and you're competing for energy, right? And they're you're competing. competing. You're competing. And energy prices are going up for everyone else because you have to, you know, strengthen the grid or provide the supply to these data centers as well. Um, and and it was a good call probably at that point in time because after that they had uh, issues around getting gas supply as well, right? So they would not have been able to provide that much of a gas to, to continue to support these big uh, power guzzlers. Now, um, 2022, fast forward 2022, what I understand is that they started to lift that moratorium, but on a very controlled basis. So they started to allocate quotas for, and, and uh, you know, you could bid for the quotas for the data centers. So it meant that they weren't still opening the doors. It was very much in a controlled manner because there were certain data centers that they wanted. And they imposed uh, certain standards such as green energy, power usage, effectiveness, if I'm not mistaken. You know, there were certain metrics that they imposed on the uh, data centers. Now, we are probably a beneficiary of the moratorium from... Uh, Singapore's moratorium because data centers are now looking at Malaysia as well as Indonesia. 
Now, the question is whether or not we start to think the same now as to why Singapore started imposing that moratorium, whether how do we manage that as well, right? How do we avoid the risks that Singapore is seeing today as well? Because these data centers are going to be quite uh, huge consumers of our electricity. And then, as you rightly pointed out, right now, industry is about uh, 38%, 40%. That will grow if they fall under that. Actually, data centers is under commercial. And as the country so actually <laughs> focus more on having data centers Having here. data centers. So I think it needs to be managed. I think it has to be a, a controlled approach where we welcome. We, we don't want to stop investments. I mean, they're good right, for the country. But at the same time, being very um, meticulous as well in terms of ensuring that we get the cost benefit from these uh, investments. At the end of the day, it must fulfill our investment targets as well, which is to get high value investments that actually benefit the country at the end of the day. Okay, um, so thanks Pon Safina for sharing your thoughts. Um, one other question um, is this. Um, this country, we know Malaysia enjoys one of the most so-called uh, competitive uh, tariff in the region. Uh, potentially about 20, correct me if I'm wrong, about 20 cent per kilowatt for household and about maybe 36, 38 cent uh, per kilowatt for uh, non-domestic uh, users. It's still relatively cheaper compared to Singapore, compared to South Korea and Japan, which potentially about four or five times of that. And what you're doing eventually leads to even more competitive tariff. That's the end game. That's what the consumers would like to hear. Why? this is so important for the industry and for the country and what kind of benefits potentially we can leverage on having more competitive a tariff structure in Malaysia. Okay. So I would split it into two parts as you put, you know, domestic versus non-domestic. Um, for the domestic consumers, uh, it's really about the quality of life, right? It's really about quality of life, living in Malaysia, living in KL, having a reliable quality uh, electricity uh, at really very low rates compared to other countries. You know, that will be one indicator of quality of life. Uh, currently, when it comes to domestic consumers, the 20 cent, 21 cent per kilowatt hour is really um, for the first two bands, for the first 200 kilowatt hour consumption. Uh, and that's really, really far below the average uh, cost of um, generating electricity, actually, which is about 39, 40 cents uh, in that sense. Um, and uh, it's great, you know, to be able to enjoy those kind of tariffs as a citizen, as a rakyat. Uh, but at the same time, you know that when it's below cost, it's not sustainable. So it does have to move up to levels where it is still more manageable. Because at the end of the day, if it's not, if there's that gap, then that's where the government keeps having to come in to provide subsidies and therefore taking away budget from for other uses. So that's on the domestic uh, front. Um, it will go up, but I doubt that we will go up to levels where, because as a cost, as a cost, electricity cost alone, the system cost, we are actually quite competitive. We're actually quite low compared to the region for the level of quality that we have. So our level of uh, electricity is like uh, developed country level, in fact, even better than some, right? So we're, we're doing good on that front. 
Now, on the CNI front or commercial and industrial front, non-domestic, it really matters in terms of ensuring that we don't um, make ourselves too expensive, that we lose out on the cost competitive advantage. Right now, we're actually not the cheapest. We're somewhere somewhat in the middle, right? Uh, not too expensive, not too cheap. Um, and when the tariff restructuring is done, what's good actually for the for this segment is that at least they will be able to see and forecast their own um, consumption, but also forecast based on energy or fuel prices uh, moving forward, and also be able to uh, determine whether it makes economic sense or business sense uh, for them to go for green energy. Because right now, all of those costs are very much bundled in. You, they need transparent costing as well, or pricing, so that they will be able to make those decisions as to green, as to um, managing their own operations, and so on and so forth. So I think it will really be a good step for, for the CNI. It won't be marginally so expensive anyway, because they are already paying for... They're not being subsidised by ICPT, as you know, today, right? So it, it's, it's really about managing that volatility of prices uh, from the fuel component. So in other words, uh, first, save our uh, public coffers, um, government subsidies, that's particularly for the household. And for the CNI, you mentioned commercial and industrial users, eventually to present Malaysia as a, a remains as a, a cost competitive destinations and lower their cost of doing business here in Malaysia. So that's the end game of uh, Messi 2.0 uh, through more competitive market structure and uh, tariff. Um, that's uh, the end of the first part of our conversation. Um, and we are now on to the second part of the conversation, Puan Safina. We have a three standing question that we like to ask our uh, guest uh, speaker. So if you don't mind, uh, we would like to hear your thoughts as well on these three standing questions. First uh, question we have for you is, if you could invest in any business or, or, or startup, what would it be and why? It doesn't have to be electricity-focused uh, 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 business. I think I would invest in actually three things that I see as a theme. One, I can't avoid electricity. I'm looking at it right now. But in terms of electricity, I would really invest in, and this is a startup, right? I would really invest in new sorts of nuclear technology. Excellent. I think we will come to that stage where we will need it. And I believe that when you look at the value chain, the margins will actually not be made by being the producer, you know, the power plant producer and generator on that part. It will actually be with the technology uh, creators or developers, right? So I would really look at technology within that space. That's where most of the value will be captured. Um, and potentially perhaps address the biggest pinpoint within that so-called nuclear, which is the how do you actually manage the nuclear waste, right? Yes. That is the biggest it's question. Point. People will want it. If we can crack that, you know, Solve that problem. Solve that problem. Potentially, we can um, adopt nuclear. I think you know all countries will want to to really consider it as as an option, um, and within that space as well, uh, battery energy storage, definitely, and the different source of technologies within that. Um, I think that that's really one, and the third one within that same space. And again, this is just one space, right? It's really around um, solar PV panels that are more efficient, that are more. Uh, ready for tropical climates because the solar panels that we 
have today that we install today within the country is actually not developed for our climate. Our climate has more humidity, you know, so it does need to that. If we can crack the code again and solve that problem of we have low uh, efficiency in our solar panels, it's, it's only about, capacity factor is only about 16%, by the way. So we need to solve for that, right, so that we can install less but get more. Right, if we can bring it up to, say, 50% efficiency levels, and that's been done in some lab testing environment, um, that would really change the game. So those are all game-changing technologies that I would really look into when it comes to energy. Just an extension, what about hydrogen? Hydrogen is... I don't see hydrogen as a new technology, actually, because I see it as it's been around for long. The only thing that needs to be solved for hydrogen is the cost. So if there are new ways of producing hydrogen at very cost-competitive levels, then it will take off. Right now, what we're seeing is that even based on the long-term uh, forecasts, hydrogen hasn't crossed any of the LCOEs of all the combinations that we're looking Perhaps at. Perhaps <laughs> because do, there, there is no scale. So that's why it has to be produced at scale. Maybe. So if it's cost. produced at scale, bringing down the cost, then it's a game changer, right? Because, but right now, hydrogen is really an offset. To me, it's maybe the offset of the tail end of decarbonization that we need at this point in time. But it's good to have that as um, you know, options, right? We need to have diversification in terms of offsets as well, right? Um, the abatement options. Um, but I do think that those are the the battery technology, storage technologies, the nuclears and the um, solar panel efficiencies, you know, those are immediate, probably short, medium term and sustainable over the long term kind of technologies that we will need. Thank you very much. Perfect. Second question. I, I think it's certainly a, an easy question for you. I know you read for pleasure. Um, what do you consider a must-read book or a must-listen podcast? Oh my God, I'm going to I'm going to be you know seen like a geek here, but all my readings right now are really on energy. <laughs> 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 it's like because because I'm not an engineer, right? I'm not an engineer. I was new to this space, so I really have to read a lot on this. Um, and it's really been this book by uh, this former. Uh, managing director of Brattle called Power After Carbon. He really unpacks the realities of uh, transitioning. So less of the airy-fairy, but the realities of how do we actually, you know, what do we actually need to do to actually create this power that is more clean, right? Um, and that's been the book uh, that I've been trying to finish reading. <laughs> Thank you, Puan uh, Safina. You yourself is actually a, a fast riser, relatively young, and you have... Uh, achieve much. You were in Kazana before, you were in MDAC. Um, you're not engineer, engineer, but you're a software engineer at one point with TM, right? You've seen many um, throughout your career uh, progression. So what advice would you offer to aspiring um, uh, entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, young talent um, out there? Um, yeah, I think always think creatively, but understand that first is what problem are you trying to solve, right? Try to really get to the crux of what is the problem here and whether or not you can be the solution to that problem. If you are able to be the solution to that problem, your business, your business will take off. Your venture will definitely take off. So think of it from what problem we're trying to solve 
for the country, for the sector, for a company, you know, and that will definitely uh, definitely get you the, the kind of uh, success in the ventures that, that you're in. Excellent. Golden nugget. Let us all be part of solutions in whatever we do or whatever we pursue. Thank you very much, Point City Safina. This conversation has been an enriching one, at least for me, and I hope the audience would learn a lot more from uh, you, at least on the electricity industry, uh, as well as just a, um, a perspective on energy and uh, economy. Thank you very much, Point City Safina. Thank you. Thank you, Taufik.